Hello, this is Nasser. Welcome to the Afrocentric Lesson Plan. For this episode, I will not be joined by my good friend Tess. Instead, I have a way more beautiful co-host today. Goes by the name of Reza. What's up? What's up? I didn't know I was replacing your bro, man. This is like, <laughs> all right, the pressure just got real. <laughs> no, no, no. So what has happened is Tez and I have decided to do episodes in our different parts of the country. So I'm based in Providence, Rhode Island. Tez is based in Birmingham, Alabama. So Tez will be coming forth with an episode of the Afrocentric Lesson Plan, interviewing and co-hosting the show with someone from Alabama. So I just thought it was a good way to kind of bridge the gap yeah. that we have between us. Because there's a lot of cool people down in Birmingham that I really want him to talk to. Yeah. And there's a lot of cool people up here that I really want to talk to, too. So I think it's like simple math from two to like four or more. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we decided to do this outcast style, you know, speaker box, love below. Yes. That, that type style. <laughs> I was just telling uh, one of the students I work with about that album, actually. That's the all-time greatest album of all time. Just amazing. And yes. I still think The Love Below just beat Speaker Box. It was, I mean, I don't have a, a loyalty around them because I don't remember bumping them, I guess you could say, as much as like I should have. Like, don't get me wrong, I love Outkast, like, very much. But I just didn't, like, in the wave of albums, right? But this guy was, like, all excited because somebody had just dropped a double album. And he's like, Miss! Miss, like, well, the future double that? album? The future double album. He's like, Miss, who does that? Who does that? And I was like... A lot of people. Outkast. <laughs> Speaker Outkast box. did it. Look so it well. up. <laughs> so, so well. Um, shout, shout out to all the Outcast scholars out there. Because, like, they're, like, college classes on Outcast now. Yes. So, I think, like, Regina Bailey, Cassie Lehman did a wonderful lecture on Outcast and the importance of Southern hip-hop that I just think is amazing. So, please, you guys, if you have not checked that out, please check that out. There's yeah. a plug for my brother, Mr. Lehman who is just absolutely amazing, and Dr. Regina Bailey, who's absolutely, absolutely amazing as well. Bring it to the children. <laughs> so, I wanted to talk about diversity and liberalism. Okay. And diversity and liberalism at a point of interrogation, in that I don't, I, I am hard-pressed not to trust a liberal. Ooh. <laughs> not okay. to not not because I feel like there's this happy feel good equity that we go into. That's really because you kind of second wavy feminism type equity in that in a before us all be equal, we have to erase everything that's unique about us, mm. so we can all be equal. Mm -hmm. And when we're all equal, we can all love each other, and we can all be together, and we can all. Join hands and walk down the street arm in arm singing, we shall overcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I ain't down with that. Not not in Trump America, not in 2017. I think there's material equity that needs to be achieved, not, not a moral equity. You can keep your moral equity. Because one, I feel like people who are in the margins, moral equity is, is more. We have more moral equity because we, by way of lacking that privilege to oppress. At certain instances. So I think the margin, the marginalized of the marginalized of the marginalized have the highest in moral equity. Where the rest of us, as we slowly start to trickle away from that margin, go down and down. So when you say, let's all be equal and just throw away all our moral equity and be on the same level, that that doesn't sit well with me. And mm -hmm. also the... Oh, yeah, we're equal. You can go to my school, but your parents can't get this home loan to live in my neighborhood. And, you know, you're going to be followed around. The police are going to harass you and beat you and kill you. But you can ride on the bus beside me now. You can sit at my lunch counter with me now. Although you may not have the money to pay for the lunch to sit at this fancy lunch counter with me. 
But you can sit there if you just had the money. Now it's on you. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's so unfair. And it also becomes like a scapegoat to really get into the issue of systemic change. I'm kind of reminded a little bit of um, the woman who was sent to jail for um, putting her kids in a school system that she thought would better mm. serve her students. I think that was in Connecticut. And it was just making the rounds on social media this weekend that she says she would do it again. And I remember, like, I saw it, you know, yesterday, this must have been, and being like, yes, like, in my bed, like, throwing up the black power fist, like, yes, like, because here, here it is that she is and we are all supposed to be petrified because the arm of injustice, rather justice, um, spoke and deemed her unworthy of of Ohio. Thank you. Uh, unworthy of of <laughs> forgiveness or permission for the pursuit of happiness, and we're all supposed to be shaking in our boots now because look at this woman who was made an example of, and she doesn't feel made an example of. And I was feeling really good. <laughs> see, but see, that's something that, and that's also why the movie Hidden Figures didn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. In certain instances, I think the movie and the story is absolutely amazing. I think the story of these three women need to be told. I think more stories need to be told from the perspective of the marginalized and the oppressed, like these three women's were. Three women, three women's, three women were. But I don't like that they had to appeal to the moral sensibilities of white men throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I don't like that it was added that the white man had to go and tell. Ooh, I'm sorry. If you ain't seen Hidden Figures, please go see it. <laughs> also, Is <this> a spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> also, you may not want to listen right now until you go see Hidden Figures. Because <laughs> I am about to go in. I just realized there may be some people out there that hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. You've seen the commercial where the white man tears down the the sign, right? I don't think so. I've seen the commercial where the cop stops them as they're driving. Well, that's the beginning of the movie. And again, that's another instance in which they have to appeal to the sensibilities of a white man to get ahead, to Mm -hmm. to go forward. I just, Mm -hmm. it totally like, it de-intellectualized these women who were brilliant women who Mm -hmm. are brilliant women Mm -hmm. and lowered them to a state of I gotta ask permission Mm -hmm. to get entry and then when I get entry I gotta work twice as hard to prove myself and after a while they're gonna feel bad that they ever did this to me and I'm going to make them, I'm going to, almost like like racism is bullying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of, like, white people think racism is equated to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bullying. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, I remember when some stuff went down with me at PC, the guard that we reported the incident to was like, you know, after talking to you for this time period, I feel like you're a very intelligent young man, and those guys that called you a nigger, they're going to feel bad when you're in class and you're answering all the questions. And I looked at him like, man, I, like, I don't care how they feel. Go get them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to appeal to the moral sensibilities of them. Like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. But this does nothing by way of justice for me. Yeah. This does nothing by way of material justice, tangible justice for me. To yeah. make, I don't care about making you feel bad. And it's just weird last word stuff. And I feel like, again, that's why the sister in Ohio, like, there's like a last word element. Like, mm-hmm. what that guard said to you was like, don't worry. In a few years, and he's framing it as you're going to have the last word. But when they have whatever moral awakening 
whatever interpersonal understanding, whatever come to to Jesus racism, anti-racism moment they have, that won't be about you. That will be about them. Exactly. That will be about them. That will be about them having the last word. Just like sort of that idea that I'm getting from you from the, the film. It's like though those white characters represent America finally being able to have the last word and saying, we're all right, aren't we? We're all right. Has to be some, <laughs> some redeeming characteristic right. in there. We're all we right. to redeem ourselves because that's what those people, and right. people can change. Right. And I can change. I may have said some racist stuff yesterday, right. but I can change. My moral sensibilities, exactly. my moral equity has been changed. That does nothing by way of justice. For this person that you hurt. Right. That does and nothing. the sister in Ohio, like, you know, the courts were like, you're going to jail. And they oh, thought I... they had the last word. That's it. We're locking you up. And they really thought they were done. And that that's why I'm just, like, loving her moment of, like, and I do it again. Like, it's just like, you know, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So that's that Dr. King. That's now that's the Dr. King people don't like to talk about that. Oh, if you march, we're gonna lock you up. Right. All right, y'all. So what time we marching? Right. Who, who got right. who got bail money? Who ready she, to go to jail today? Her letter from Birmingham was like a tweet sized. I do it again. <laughs> who ready to go to jail? I'm glad you mentioned letter from a Birmingham jail because. Even in the letter of the Birmingham jail, Martin King talk about white liberals and tell he basically right. tells them shut the hell up. Right. Stop telling me <laughs> right. how to do this. Right. <laughs> you guys keep kind of saying like we should wait a little bit and like be a little like softer and nicer dudes, but like nah. He, I don't even think it was that. I think he was real gangster with it. Like he was in jail. Like look, y'all gotta come see me. It's like yeah. one more person say something. Right. Yeah, right. you talk about future double album. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about future's double album. The Bar Luther King, uh, letter from Birmingham Jail. Like, that was fire. That was the Kendrick Lamar yes. of the day. Yes. That was the Kendrick Lamar of his time. <laughs> yes, yes. No, but I think, you know, on the topic of diversity, I mean, my dream workshop around this stuff is like actually just like just a whole like two hours of vocabulary lessons mm. right because diversity for instance is a synonym to variety variety is not the same thing as representative mm -hmm. is not the same thing as inclusive is not the same thing as ending something so i think it does get confusing and you know as as you were getting all set up with the equipment here i was like thinking about the notion like Yes, I would much rather have a diverse panel looking at a health issue that I'm having. That is to say, people who are different from their neighbors. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't also mind a black-ass roundtable of doctors looking at my stuff, too. Which, in some cases, right, isn't diversity if they're all black. That's not a variety, racially speaking. But we also know that that's why these terms can't be just thrown around and used mm. interchangeably because you also could have a round table of black doctors where some have been educated in Cuba, some have been educated in Harlem, some have been had educated in at Vanderbilt, some have been educated in California. So there is diversity if we're talking about and willing to sort of go beyond the, the surface of of race but and ethnicity, but I, I don't think... I don't think people get it right at all. Well, the reason why we we focus on race and ethnicity because I think like that's where whiteness flaws come in at. Because like in whiteness, there's so much of white, mm -hmm. so we need to diversify. And diversity meaning not white, so it, it becomes politicalized. Diversity is a word in that, and we need variety. That word has then become politicalized to oh, we need black and brown people, mm -hmm. or the word urban. The, the word urban has very much become politicalized to mean black and brown people. This right. is an urban school district. Right. This is right. an urban neighborhood. Right. I'm in right. an urban teaching program. Right. Call it what it is. Right. You, you're training me to go out and teach. You're trying to train me to go out and teach. That was so, that was shady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're training me. Putting in some efforts. Um. You're training me to go out and teach black and brown youth. That's what, you, that was the premise of this program. But instead of calling it that, um, you called it 
urban education, urban teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, same way with diversity, become very politicalized. Instead of saying you want the variety, even even with that though. You want the variety, say you want the variety of people to come in, but you want them to assimilate to how your culture and climate is in your school. You want them to be a cookie-cutter model of your school and what you want from your school. So you you take, again, that's this is just liberalism. Mm-hmm. You strip all the uniqueness about this person away to make them into what you want them to be. And I keep telling people they can't do that. You can't open the floodgates and say, excuse me, you can't open the floodgates and say only a stream can come through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Only a stream at a time. No, when you open the floodgates, you're going to get a rush. Mm-hmm. You're going to get water coming at you. You're going to get a rush. And you got to accept that rush that you got coming at you. Like, you don't... I'm. It, it frustrates me that we bring black, brown, queer women into spaces that aren't ready for them yet. There aren't, and there's nothing wrong with these women. There's nothing wrong with these black and brown people. There's nothing wrong with these queer and trans people. It's the space. The space is not ready for you yet. The space hasn't done the work. The people in the space haven't done the work to really prepare themselves and their organization for you. I think that two-hour workshop is something, but I think it needs to be a series of things that need to take place. By consultant, um, since this Afrocentric lesson plan, I want to talk from a school perspective. You need to bring in a consultant from outside the school, a person of color that isn't connected with the school, that can tell them, this is messed up, this is wrong, you need to look at this, you need to look at that. Before you bring in these unsuspected black, brown, queer, and women, trans people, into your space, um... And and have them suffer. Suffer at your hands. I just think that's so unfair. You know, folks aren't always ready for that. So that's the thing, Nas. Like, because I've seen, I've seen actually that very protocol happen. Mm. And seen white teachers, instructors, staff folks in a school... Um, you know, use those words that, you know, we become familiar with reverse racism, <sighs> divisive, and shut down. And, you know, I, I think I think that we're really afraid in, in some cases to sort of like name the names. And this is like, again, the vocabulary stuff, like tribalism comes to mind for me. Um, and then with the adjective of white in front of it, white tribalism, I don't, it's like kind of real white supremacy. It's not better for me though, because supremacy is such a, an educational term. What is Uh, supreme? Where is uh, it? Is it high up? White power. Are you talking about tribalism? You start to picture, oh, well, it's more than one person. Oh, there's a place where they gather. They have shared values, values and customs. There are rituals sometimes. What are those ideas that we? Oh, like sometimes they burn people at the stakes. You speak it to my soul right now. Right? Um, they have different things they do with their women that are different from their boys. They have like rituals from youth to adulthood, and so I, I've seen, I've seen it with those trainings. I believe it. Voltron up. I believe it. Well, right? it's the same thing they said in Mississippi. You know, oh, we 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 do things a certain way down here in Mississippi. Don't come around him causing trouble for us. Uh, we do things a certain way down here in in Alabama. We do things a certain way in Tennessee, and this is how it is. Just like going into school. Well, this is how we do things at this school. Right. Right. This is what this is what this is. Right. And Primarily, we really like to celebrate during uh, uh, February Black History Month and for Martin Luther King Day. Oh. What about the other days of the school All right. year? There's 180 days in the school year. What about the other days? Yeah. So it's, it is it is tough, but I also think going back to the diversity representative argument, right? Mm-hmm. If we ask schools to engage in practices and trainings 
and career development and ladder roles that allowed for members who were reflective and representative of their student body, that would in some ways be a very different and more direct ask than just diverse. Because again, and this isn't, I mean, I am not xenophobic, right? Like when I was driving over here, I was also thinking about um, the way global conflicts bring new people and new populations and you new ethnicities. You want to know who's going to be in your ELL classes? Look at the wars around the world. Precisely, precisely. And so, so my sense also of reflective, representative, and diversity is also, at least in terms of thinking more of the representative and reflective and schools is very dynamic. Mm. It changes a lot because we are still globally pro-military, which means the conflicts continue, which means the refugees continue, mm -hmm. which means the migrations continue. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of thinking about, so in a model in which we had uh, a Someone who used to teach literature in Syria, sending a girl to a school where there was an English language arts opening. Is that school ready? Is our community ready to say, well, wow, he is now representative because his little girl's there. Wow, we do need to consider him. Maybe he's not like the janitor just because he has an accent. But you know what, though? I think that's an even deeper argument to say that domestically we don't take care of people that, that are not white in education. The loops and the hurdles that, because like that person coming from Syria, I, I think it'll even, it'll be another lifetime before they'll be allowed to even teach in America. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But look at the, the leaps and the hurdles we make black and Latino people jump through before they get teaching licenses. Even once they get the teaching license and they are on their first job, their first gig, this, the, the loops and the hurdles that school administrators and school personnel, because they're now part of the tribe, puts them through. Mm -hmm. it's, it's ridiculous. Almost like you set them up, or in certain instances, and you all can tell I'm kind of bitter because I've gone through this. You set me up for failure. You wanted to watch me fall. You wanted to watch me fail. When I came in and decided I'm going to deviate from the tribe, I'm not going to do what you're doing because I, I can't win doing what you're doing. It's a proven fact. I'll never win doing what you're doing. So I got to do it this way. is isn't a bad way. A different way. A diverse way. You don't want that. You wanted me diverse in skin, but you didn't want me, you didn't want me diverse in ideology. You didn't want me diverse in approach. You didn't want me diverse in, in theory, in the theories I bring into my classroom, how I interact with students, how I interact with parents. You didn't want that. You just wanted me diverse in skin color. That's very much an issue. I think, like, having diversity on the teaching staff and not having diversity in administration is an even worse sin. You need to have diversity in the administration. I think every school, black, all black school included, should have an administrator that is dedicated to social emotional welfare of students uh, of the school. So not just the students of the teachers, all that. And that person should be versed on critical race theory, on community on community engagement, on student engagement. That person should be versed with all that as an administrator, and it should be a person of color. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I brought up the that at the, the Educators of Color conference where there was a discussion around sort of what questions we had time to ask because it was a short panel and there were lots of things folks wanted to talk about, including myself. And so at some point there was a narrowing of some questions into questions related to being at or teaching at predominantly white institutions, right? And that was that moment where I'm like set up to ask that question, to move the panel discussion to that question in that area. I'm sort of looking around my panel and then I'm looking in the audience 
And I'm like, we got to break this down because most of us are working in schools that are predominantly Latino kids and black kids and South Asian, Southeast Asian kids. Mm -hmm. So what do we mean by predominantly white? Because I know we, we're not talking about like the student body, if I'm supposed to be asking something that resonates with the people in front of me. And yet there is a sort of predominant white space that is still um, applicable to all of um, the realities in the room. And, um, and so I, I think that was an interesting moment. Um, you know, we were talking before starting the conversation, like, when I'm doing like conferences and events, I practically get amnesia. Like it's like really terrible. Like I just like all the pent up energy. Like once it's like done, it's like poof. I'm just like, please, no, don't go, memory. So, um, so for me to have like a really clear memory like that is like noteworthy. And that's sort of <laughs> like I can remember it going from like seven hands raised, right? When I said how many of you work in predominantly white institutions that is like white kids, like basically in seven hands. And then how many of you work in institutions where your leadership or administration is predominantly white in every, every hand? hand I, that's an issue. That's an, I talked to Alorza about that. So I, due to a surgery, was walking very slowly from the two buildings at the conference. And I ran into Mayor Lorza, who is uh, Mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. And he didn't run away from me. Quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like him. He's a nice guy. Now, that does not go for, like, his political stance. That does not go for me saying I back every bill, everything he does, every yeah. political thing he does. I want to make that clear. <laughs> well, he's an intellectual. He is an intellectual. I, I And I think in the, like... Like, sometimes in the history of politicians in Providence, like, we certainly have, like, business folks and entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who sometimes are self-made, who haven't gone, like, the academic route, the collegiate route. We, you know, we have folks who, like, um, built their businesses and reputations around construction. Like, we definitely have sometimes a very working class type of, like, folksy mm -hmm. um type of leadership generally and Alorza definitely somewhat similar to Angel Tavares like much more like intellectually academically I just, from the background I just so he likes to talk to make he likes sure to listen no I'm, that yeah. folks knew yes. this is not my and endorsement I'm with of Alorza there's I no endorsement a, this, this is me separating the man from his job That's right. I walked with him and talked with him so, <laughs> yes. what yep. I said to him, well, you know, the Providence Audience for Education Conference is coming up April 8th. Um, so, I am going to be, God willing, I'm going to be in attendance for that. And what I told Loiza was, this Educators of Color Conference is really okay. I was like, it's what I expected in that no real systemic stuff is being spoken about, no real issues is really being, everything just being scratched at. I feel like the deep, the deepest we got was with the panel discussion because it was primarily made up of people not based here. Knows that? No, because Don Mays is from here. I'm from there. I'm from here, and the woman at the learning community was from here, and Adiola's from here. There were only people. two people two who people. were out of staters. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I didn't know the man. Um, done he's at roger williams university yep that's why so i was like so i'll have to let me back 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 up misspoke the panel was not made primarily of people not from here but it was the most vocal i've heard at at the whole conference like that i felt that was the realest i felt to get at the entire conference in both the sessions i was in where they really like, you know what, y'all, we're going to cut it right now and just really have a real conversation and talk and talk about black teachers in a sunken place and talk about X, Y, Z. So I was talking to Eloisa and I was saying how this is really vital, but we need a administrator's conference. 
we need an administrators conference where they come in and they just learn all about this critical race theory. Uh, they just come in and they really start to unpack some stuff within their buildings and what they're doing. We need people from Rye in this conference. We need we just need a whole conference just for those people, the people on the higher up, the policymakers. Teachers, we can only do so much within our reach and our scope. Mm. But we're fighting losing battles if we do not have the support of administration. If we get policies down the pipeline that are to our detriment, we, we are fighting a losing battle. So who are we having the conversation with? Because if we're having the conversation amongst ourselves... I don't think, I think until we start screaming at administration, until we start screaming at policymakers, having the conversation amongst ourselves won't move the pendulum. I mean, I think the value of podcasts is that I can 100% disagree with you. Yes. Um, I mean, because I feel like, so, and we've talked before about, like, in Mississippi, there's, like, a black teachers union or a black presence in the teachers unions mm-hmm. there that's very strong so the background that you come from come with i mean it's a little bit reminds me of like che Guevara landing in angola like having just like done the revolution in cuba like come on y'all we about to do this revolution and they're like um what are you like what are you wearing like who are you like mm-hmm. what um I'm not sure, dog. Like, we don't eat beans. Like, so, no. you know. So, I I mean, because I feel really differently about the conference. And I think, like, I like I have my biases. Like, I'm always, like, ready to put them on the table. And I definitely have a very good collegiate and interpersonal relationship with one of the folks who organized the conference. Mm-hmm. So my, my lens may be more rosy. Like, just vis-a-vis that relationship but I've been to enough conferences that were supposed to be for educators in Rhode Island educators in Providence and educators in New England and not seeing that type of diversity not seeing not even just diversity that conference was like black yo like Mm -hmm. it was not like majority Latino and then black and then it was like majority black and Mm -hmm. then other ethnicities and that's not something that we see unless you're talking about the black heritage ball um the national excuse me like the NAACP annual dinners and breakfasts Mm -hmm. you don't really see that especially with the age diversity that was present because of the the way that teaching and education draws in people from all different ages so it might be sort of something that like black communities outside of Rhode Island are accustomed to gathering in that way but it's not the in the norm at all so it really was a starting point um, it's probably something that I'm looking at then because it's like the gathering portion of it I think I took for granted because I'm like, okay, so we all came together. I think, and that's partly what frustrated me more was that this was a space that we were all together in, that we could all feel safe, that we could all really start to air out and say, hey, I'm having this issue or this is an issue. How, how can we help each other and equip ourselves to deal with this issue? I even even in like some of the discussions in my breakout session, I had one person raise their hand and say, "Well, let's not make it about race." And I'm looking like, "You mm-hmm. at the educators of cover conference? Like it's about race right now." Is it a, a white person no, or a black, black person? Okay, mm-hmm. black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But see, we well, and and think about it, because where is he going after the conference, and who is he engaging with? after the conference and if he's trying to move an agenda or point forward in a white dominated administrative space then the language of race and only race can be exclusive and detrimental to his strategy and i'll just say on my end like one of the breakout sessions i went to was around the the ethnic studies courses right Mm -hmm. That's systemic change right there because yes. they're talking about a curriculum. So you have to think about documentation, first mm-hmm. of all. And that's just like so key and important, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's why the, the textbooks coming out of Texas are so 
scary, like the documentation. And also they're talking about getting it in as many schools as possible. Well, if done right, and this does go with your point, then individual teachers or administrators might not be able to block it if it is embedded into the schools through those permissions. Um, and, and I had in that session, like a woman say, um, we're, it's like there is like small work groups, you know, like in already <laughs> breakout sessions, like basically question the value um, of ethnic studies or the future, like potential if you take that type of coursework while in the middle of that session. So I know kind of it wasn't perfect <laughs> in there either to that extent, um, but I just I had an answer and it was led by young women and I could tell that my approach to this woman's answer became part of that young woman's arsenal of responses for when that question is raised again. Mm -hmm. And I, I respect that in, in the same topic of in the vein of um, achieving ethnic studies for what they've gotten so far. I think these kids definitely took a diplomatic approach to it. But when the diplomatic approach was getting them at closed doors, they took direct direct action as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's a place for the direct action as well, which, again, like appealing to the sensibilities of white people. I think appealing to the sensibilities of white people, even with, and I don't know, this, this gentleman that posed this question, like, why do we have to make everything about race? I don't think it's about race. I think we're talking about black people not having teaching license and not being in the classroom and how the application pools are very low when you're looking for black applicants and like where are the black teachers and we brought up about standardized testing we talked about push out of black students from teacher education programs uh push out of black males from elementary education programs and he raises his hand and goes well i don't think it's about race and you can think that that's fine fine and dandy but you're at the Educators of Color conference, and this is an issue that was posed by Educator of Color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and even to say that, to say, well, he's going back to teaching an all-white space, and this may, this may be the approach he has to take. I think appealing to the sensibilities of our oppressors are only going to get us that far before the door shuts and it's unopened. You can't open it, so you have to get an axe and you got to tear it down. Those students got to axe with ethnic studies and tore it down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're still tearing doors down to this day. They're still moving that fight. Um, they're still moving along with that. And it's, it's not perfect. I know a teacher that is one of the teachers of the ethnic studies programs here in Providence. And she's fighting every day. Mm -hmm. She's in a war zone every day. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I don't want to, I guess because my background is I don't get excited to see black people gather. Mm -hmm. That doesn't excite me. Um, I think it's beautiful. I love it. I love to be in black spaces. I love being around black people. I feel safe. I feel loved. I feel supported. But I grew up in that. I grew up in being surrounded by black people. I grew up in going to the teacher's lounge and all the black teachers are in there. It's all black teachers at this high school. That, that wasn't a thing to me, but it's different to be black in skin and, like, oppressive in ideology. And that's what I felt. I felt like we weren't. I don't feel like people were oppressive in ideology at that, or everyone was oppressive in ideology at the conference. But I don't feel like real issues got discussed. I don't feel like we had the space. We didn't take advantage of the space. Mm. I guess because we were, we were too mesmerized by all of us being inside. In the same space, we're all trying to get jobs, we're all trying to network and all that. I feel like that that convoluted what the actual mission was of the of the space. But I think that there's a real branching when you're talking about people who are trying to get jobs. And so some of the folks in the room are educators of color trying to get jobs and mm -hmm. some people are trying to dismantle the educational system mm -hmm. it was a gathering that had both there mm -hmm. and i feel like um those who were trying to dismantle the educational system i mean you were at providence college right mm -hmm. you know and i was you know like and 
anybody who was there thinking we were going to burn Providence College down in pursuit. And I'm exaggerating. I try to burn Providence College down every time have, I'm there. Yeah. I have a pack I mean, of matches. No, I don't. Yeah. I do not have a pack of matches <laughs> when I go to class at Providence College. Just FYI. Yeah. But I, no, but I just, I mean, I think it was like, and I, I mean, that's what it, that's what the movement is. It's very sticky in terms of the different approaches and ideologies and definitions of radical. Uh, I've tried to engage in different with different educators of color um, in the state and in Providence, and I'm pretty like nauseous really with mm. a lot of my efforts. And some of the same people with the same fervor um, that that you know some of what you're expressing, who I think have been hurtful, dismissive, rigid, uh, misogynistic, yes. uh, limiting, uh, elitist, mm. um, and I can go on. So I'm, I definitely am like, yeah, I think like we have to figure out how to share those spaces, mm. like because it wasn't just Nas's or just Raises, right? Mm. There were there were young folks in the room who were still in college. Mm -hmm. Actually, there were still high school students there. Mm -hmm. What did they see? What did they take away? Mm -hmm. What should we be thinking about if we engage them again? Mm -hmm. um, what do we want to, to empower them to do? Um, I think those are really hard questions because, you know, the SNCC model, for instance, says leave school, get on a bus, go to where you're needed the most, put in the hard work, um, hope that it's worthy, and some of y'all will make it back in the mainstream living. Um, I'm not sure if that's where we are, that we want folks to, um, you know, um, to get out of school for the movement, right? Um, on the other hand, the sort of like um, the pro-capitalistic join the workforce, silence your voice, the voices that you're representing, the needs that you know that need addressing in order to fit the small role that has been created by the same people who have made that role so small. I don't know that that's it either. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it's a complex. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's complex and the complexity is the beauty of it. I definitely come from schools out there. I think education is liberation. In, in whatever form you get it, whether it be formal education, whether it be through the prison system like Malcolm, whether it be um, homeschool, whether it be you just learn from the school to hard knocks. I think education is vital, mm -hmm. and no matter how you get it, you should get it. I'm so glad you said that, though, because I am reminded, and I, I had wondered if you had heard this connection, because I heard the connection. Um that Clint Smith talked about in response, I think, to your question. And if it wasn't in response to your question, when he said it, I was like, oh, this is a response to Nas' question! He was talking about his work in prisons. He yeah. did. He started talking about his research when I asked him about um, capitalism in the classroom. He mentioned his research. Yeah. That frustrated me. See, that, that to me um, awakened intrigued and has me still and I wanted him I wanted that whole keynote address to be that I wanted that whole keynote address to be that if you got up there and talked about your research for the whole time period just talked about you taking your black self voluntarily into a prison to teach other black men who are now totally isolated from the rest of society, have nothing to gain or lose from getting their education, but still show up and get it and still want to intellectually better themselves. I wanted to hear about that. Like, what, what are you doing with that? What are your teaching approaches with that? Like, how do you all talk about patriarchy in there? How do you all talk about sexism in there? Like, what's that conversation looking like? Mm. Didn't hear it until I posed that question. Mm -hmm. And then he is like, almost like, you know how I don't get out when they took the picture of the man. Mm -hmm. And the man snapped out of it for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wait, wait, this is where I'm at. So this is, mm -hmm. that's what I felt like happened. Mm -hmm. Like he was putting on a great performance. 
but I didn't feel any substance until that moment where the flash then it was like, oh, wait, so this is what I'm actually doing. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. don't get this keynote stuff messed up. Like, this is what I go into the jail system every, almost every day. Mm-hmm. And I work with these men and we talk about these stuff. And this is, and I was like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is what it is. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I, I ask too much of people. Maybe. <laughs> I don't um, know. I, I can't play. The I, game. I I loved it. I loved his. I loved his keynote. I mean, as a as a poet, who sometimes I communicate the overlapping ideologies and sensibilities and priorities and limitations through poetry, and that those pieces have to do with my personal life, my mm-hmm. career life, my political life. Mm-hmm. I really um, felt grateful to see someone who was asked to give a lecture or a keynote that probably would have sounded more like what you're describing, throw in poetry mm-hmm. instead. So, I, you know, I think we were just there in some ways just needing different things mm-hmm. out of well, it. No, I, I don't, but I don't disagree with him and his poetry. I don't disagree that. Well, you're the one who just said he had no substance until then. It you're did. the one who said it, the poem didn't have such substance. You I, said I had, no substance until then. So that's like, I poems, mean, that's like, that's. Well, he, he opened the poetry with, you know, this is for all our sons. That's what he opened the, the poetry with. And he talked about, oh, my classroom is a space of imagination and creativity. I mean, there were teachers teaching boys. I'm here for that. I'm not not, here for that. I think he was sharing it because he was in a room full of teachers who teach boys. I didn't hear an indictment of patriarchy. I didn't hear, like, a critique of patriarchy. I didn't hear... But why does it... See, this is the thing. Why does the black space have to be always so heavy? Like, what I heard in there was, like, gratitude and love towards a father... Um, engagement and permission to be free as found in black boys, mm-hmm. critical analysis, not only as to be considered, but to be delivered as a teacher and received when we're talking about presidents of the United States. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I think all of that is both black and beautiful. And I just don't see why it had to be like, why, it had to be an indictment of the patriarch. Like, why? I, I let me tell you what. When I left Get Out, I, I, and I saw another place somewhat recently. Like, I don't need like I like the carefree black girl movement. I'm like, I don't care if I'm the last one still walking around like with that movement. I don't need the heaviness all the time. You know where I get my dose, doses of patriarchy from every motherfucking interaction I have. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I don't know that I needed to be in an audience <laughs> listening to him like. Talk to me about the stuff that I study, live with, and fight my, like, my everyday people about. But, I, again, that's why I say, like, I we think, might have needed different see, things I because. Think, I think my identities conflicted with his chemo because it felt very isolated. I felt very isolated. I felt like his definition of manhood, masculinity, of uh, who are these poems for as a queer person of color as a queer person of color, made me feel very, very isolated. Made me feel like, dang, like you're you're saying this good poetry, but I don't go there. I don't belong in that. Like, and it's almost like I understood I don't belong in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't until like the very end of his keynote that he was like, oh yeah, this goes for queer people too, and this goes for this person too, and this goes for this person. Like at the tail end, tag on. Um, and it's oftentimes, if it's not said explicitly, it's erased. And that's what I'm saying. You're saying this is for our sons. Who are our sons? What are their identities? How can we make this piece inclusive for all our sons and not just the ones that fit this mold? I guess that's what I'm saying that I wanted to hear. Um, and that's part of what I try to do as my in my classroom is 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 really critique patriarchy, and we can do that in a way that have kids not so heavy, not so heavy, but in age appropriate, but in a way that, you know, let's don't think like that. Don't think girls can't throw like boys. 
Mm-hmm. Don't think that, you know, because a boy dates a boy that something's wrong with him and, and you do something wrong to him. Don't think um, that you are automatically better physically than a girl. Those are conversations you can have with fifth graders. But he did have that piece about being bad at basketball, for instance, right? I mean, um, if he's not a queer man, wouldn't it have been disingenuous for him to try and slide a line like that into that piece? While on the other hand, that piece did represent like an otherness that he was identifying and granting other black boys to enjoy. I, I see your point. I see your point. I just felt like it was, it felt like even though it was done in a, in a spoken word form, it felt like business as usual. I think it would have been more effective. So I will say this. I was disappointed that he didn't have a session. Because he definitely could have stuck around and done a session around the, like, educating, incarcerated, and lessons to take from there. Like he, he's at the tail end of the prison industrial complex. He's yes, in the prison. Yes. Is the school yes, to prison pipeline? Yes. He's at the prison. And I will say, you know, that's the one thing, right, about, like, the conference, the conference paradigm. Mm-hmm. Like... I just don't know because I've organized stuff before. I'm like, I don't just let you off the hook. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't, I want you to be my keynote. I probably have keynote money for you. But your ass needs to stay here Mm -hmm. and do a small work group. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to do early Mm signups. Maybe you want to do a limited number. Whatever, yeah. But like, don't just do the like speak and bounce routine because Mm -hmm. that does. Because because that does cause a speaker to de- decide, am I performing mm-hmm. or am I informing? Mm-hmm. Because I got to talk to these people when I got off the stage. Right. I got to look in these people's face when I got off the stage. And so if I'm performing now, it's because I'm informing later and I'll let them know that and mm-hmm. like, we're gravy, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know what? I realize there are two roles and I'm going to choose this one and sort of like let us know. I do see that there was room for a little less of the traditional conference keynote speaker paradigm there. Um, Especially because that was such a unique space. And it was right at the end of his thing. And and it tied so much into this question around capitalism um, and how, what it would look like to to dismember it and disembody it from our educational systems and you know no but no no session on it so that yeah that does kind of and maybe if he had had a session i could have gone to it and asked him some of these questions that i wanted to ask him or heard more what he had to say and i have a totally different outlook Mm -hmm. on his kid i don't i don't think the man isn't brilliant i don't think the man isn't in the work for the work Like, Mm -hmm. like i said in the school to prison pipeline the brother's at the prison Mm-hmm. The brother's at the tail end of the school to prison pipeline. It's, yeah, like it's, you don't get no father down the school to prison pipeline. Yes, yeah. So I I can respect that, and I and but I wanted to even hear more about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I will say that your question also has been messing with me personally because I wrote my educational philosophy recently for a couple different reasons. You know, just including just needed to put put this stuff on paper applications, etc. And um and I talk about moving students from seeing themselves as consumers to seeing themselves as producers. But I think much more in the um with using producer as a much more action mm-hmm. connotated term tied to art and creative mm-hmm. making, mm-hmm. right, than the assembly line. And yet, like, it's like producer, not product. So this is what I've been thinking about. Again, like, driving over here. I want them to be thinking about themselves. <laughs> as, like, I had to be ready. I had to be ready. Thinking of themselves as producers, but not having to be productive or something. I don't know. I, no, 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 no. So, no, 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 no. I think that's amazing. I think, like, I... Even in, I used the word, I actually used the word mistakenly. 
and I, if you notice, like, if you can read, like, kind of replay, I used the word labor, and I should have said laborer. Mm-hmm. And, like, not necessarily producer, but laborer. Mm-hmm. Um, a person that, because when you, when you are labor, you're laboring for someone else. Right. You're laboring for something else. Um, better than like producing has a whole nother feel to it. Linguistically, producing has a whole nother. We're producing at this point. Right, We're right. We're creating something. We have ownership of it. We have agency over it. Yes. But to be a laborer, that's something totally different. That you're working for someone else. You don't have ownership. You don't have agency. Right. I right. think for educators, we should be producers. Mm-hmm. We should be producers of knowledge. We should be producers of intellectual property. I try to hand make all my worksheets. I hand mm-hmm. make my slides and all that. Those are my intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But what oftentimes becomes kind of what oftentimes becomes complicated is that black producers in schools are seen as laborers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are a laborer. Mm-hmm. You are not a producer. You don't have the same agency that our white teachers who are considered producers have. Mm-hmm. You don't have the same you don't have the same academic freedom as these people do. So don't try it. Mm-hmm. I think that what we train kids to be are laborers. Mm-hmm. We train black kids, Latino kids to be laborers. We train them to go out and to work in the field. Social social I know the word for it. Social conditioning, mm-hmm. we condition them to go into labor posi- positions. Like when you go into Hope High School, those kids are being conditioned to go into labor positions. Mm-hmm. They're being conditioned. And even if your labor position is you're an accountant, you're being conditioned to go work for an accounting firm, You to be labor for the accounting right. firm. Right. Where you go to Moses Brown, those kids are being conditioned to take over the family business. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. being, if you go to Rick, those students are being conditioned to be laborers, mm-hmm. to go work for someone. Where you go to Brown, those kids are being conditioned to go own their businesses, to mm-hmm. go open this, to go start the startup. Right, or to create based on their ideas. Mm-hmm. 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 Where I feel like we tell, even if you tell a black child you can be a doctor, you can own the hospital, baby. Mm-hmm. Go own the hospital. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a doctor, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Also, in being a doctor... But does that mean, like, you can also, like, you can work at this hospital. You can also have your own private practice over here. Mm-hmm. And do this on the side when you're not working for this hospital. Right. Um, right. And that's that, that's kind of in the world I want to be in right now. Like, going and teaching out of school, but also owning my own theater, my own, like, after school something and doing it that, doing that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not just a laborer. Because right. I feel like as long as I work. As long as I work for people who don't value my blackness, as long as I am putting myself in a position where I have to get a paycheck for someone that don't value my creativity, I am a laborer. Mm-hmm. And that's all you're ever going to see me as, is a laborer. Mm-hmm. So I should have used that differently. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. But in the heat of the moment. I used I used the word labor, but I mm-hmm. also used the word producer and production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Well, yeah, I mean, and those are just some of the words that you know, like I said, I've been kind of putting into my my philosophy. But, yeah, like, you really, <laughs> you made me, like, a little afraid of that word. I was like, oh, no, no, no not a no, line, no, not a no, line. No, like, but, uh, <laughs> no, no. But in a, no, in a great way, in a, in, in a way that allows me to further articulate my philosophy. And I sort of um, see it actually as more of a working document um, I don't have any, you know, educational citations in there right now. Um, I don't have any anecdotes about working with kids in there right now. So I really do see it as like kind of a working document and, um, as it should be because it's a document that reflects my philosophy on teaching, which should reflect, um, what comes to me on a daily basis teaching. So it has to be like a living, a living document, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting out here. Um, well, we are look like we're at 58 seconds right now. So 58 minutes, 58 minutes, not 58 oh, seconds. 59 there minutes. Was, there was, there was 58 <laughs> seconds just here. But we have to start to bring this to a close. So mm-hmm. I have a closing question for you that permeates in my mind. 
whenever I'm talking to a fellow educator that edu that just inspires me and educates me. And thank you so much for putting up with my my stuff. Likewise, yeah. <laughs> for 59 minutes. I got a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, where being at the conference and seeing all these older black educators, especially older black male educators, I saw a lot of what I want to be and a lot of what I don't want to be. Mm. Um, which leads me to think, where do I see myself in 20 years when I've decided I'm going to be teaching or working with, with students, either K-12, collegially, something like that. I mean, this, this is what I do. Like, mm -hmm. I can't do anything else. This is my God-given purpose. But what does that mean for me in 20 years? Like, right now, I'm, like, 27. I'm young. I'm, like, this is my first year teaching. Like, I can, like, jump and touch the moon. And, like, I'm ready, kids. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, in 20 years from now, where where is that? So where do you see yourself in 20 years from now in this field? If, you, if, if you're even still in this field. Do you see yourself still in this field? Well, I imagine, so I'll be, like, 56. So I plan to be mistaken for 40. Hey! 30! 30 and 1! I feel like um, teaching keeps me young um, and stuff like that. Um, I'm really... So that's a really tough question, but I see writing and creating and producing still at the center and heart of what I'm doing and figuring out ways in which to make it adjacent to my classroom teaching and reasons um, to keep it outside of my classroom. That's what I see. I see myself in that perpetual um, cycle of asking what am I bringing in versus what am I keeping separate. Um, but I, I think I hope that in 20 years I have more, more autonomy and um, more command over making that decision and less like resonating victimization feelings like from whether anybody else agrees with that decision of whether to include me or not in mm -hmm. my teaching. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's because yeah, okay. it's a pretty hard question. I, I'm usually like, what am I doing in three minutes? That's hey, that's what it. am I doing <laughs> next week? <laughs> Um, 20 years from now for me has been something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I definitely, one thing I want to learn how to do is play well with others. <laughs> <laughs> play in the sandbox? <laughs> I need to learn how to play well with others because if something does not seem right to me or something just does not like go with it, I know it ain't right. I speak out about it. I like go like hard for it. Um, that doesn't always keep you with a job. So, uh, <laughs> not, and I'm, I think like part of, I, I got into this field prepared to lose a job, prepared to get fired, prepared to have to always find you something, something like that. But being more open to hearing alternatives and like, like the conversation we had today, you really made me think about the other side of the, of the coin just then. And I appreciate that. Also, like you, I would love to have my own projects outside of the classroom so if i'm teaching theater and we're doing like a school play that's cool i can do the i can do like hello dolly or you know lion king or something like that mm -hmm. oklahoma if, if i end up at a school that actually can perform and like afford the lion king that would be awesome <laughs> that would be awesome one that you all have the budget for that <laughs> but <laughs> um but i can do like the kid plays like the the commercial plays but also I want my own something here for um, young adults. So like high school age, they can come in and do real plays and do, not that the commercial stuff aren't real, but come in and do plays with a little more substance for them and the, their realities and what they're going through because I plan to always work in the uh, black or Latino population. So they can come in and use theater as a way to critique society, to really examine themselves and their identities and what they're going through and all that. And I want to have that space for them where I know doing it in a commercial school, in a formal school setting, 
They don't want. They want to see West Side Story. Mm-hmm. They want to see Guys and Dolls. They want to see like this. Not the Black Dynamite remix of they don't <laughs> um, Waiting see, for Godot. Oh, sorry. They don't want to see <laughs> that in the, in the formal <laughs> setting. So I I can do that. And most theater professors and teachers I know do that. Like, yes. they have their school stuff they do, and it's like, oh, this is cool. Then they have their own private companies in which they go off and they do their other stuff, the soul-feeding work. Yeah. So. Soul-feeding. That's what I want to do. All right, you all. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Afrocentric Lesson Plan. Reza, it has been an absolute pleasure yes yeah, so to good have to talk you. to you now thanks for having me as your guest yes. host this week yes thank you for coming it's amazing um also you all tez hopefully will be returning to us soon tez we love you and Hi, we miss you this episode i'm pretty sure you could have added so much more to it <laughs> so um tez will be returning with us next week and shout out to Reza because she taught me how to use and do all of this audio stuff on GarageBand, how to really like get stuff started. So I really appreciate you for that. And we were going, I think I shouted you out the last episode, but I wanted to say it again Aww. because you're in my presence and you're absolutely amazing. So, all right, you guys, Likewise. peace and love. Bye.